All right, well, like I said at the beginning, we are finally in point number three of a one-week sermon uh, that has stretched almost a month. And so uh, we are, uh, those of you who have not been or maybe have missed a week or so, a few weeks ago we dove into the uh, topic of the past, the present, and the promise, and we're talking about what salvation is and uh, and how that has all been accomplished through things in the past that we experience in the present that is going to very much uh, impact our future. And uh, if you guys know that I, I planned this out to be just one and done and, and knock it out, but as God worked through it and, and he, uh, I began to write it and figure out what was going to happen, it got a lot longer and a lot longer. And so what we've done is we've just taken one point a week. And uh, so a few weeks ago, we started with point number one, which was the past. And we talked about the past work of justification. That's the big church word that we use that talks about what Jesus did on the cross provides our justification. We are immediately, when we, beca- when we become Christ followers, when we accept that, we are immediately justified, which means you have your right standing with God. You are, you're considered just. Everything is even. We are all good in God's eyes once we accept the sacrifice that Jesus provided on the cross for us. That moment is something that can never be taken away from us, right? Uh, He did it in the past. We have to accept it in our life to make it apply to us. But once you accept that, we talked about how that's a decision that that is his, that is held in his hand. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to unearn it, right? And then the second week, we dove into point number two, which was the present. And we talked about the present work of sanctification in the life of a believer, how uh, the Bible says that we are continuing to work out our salvation, right? And so there's this idea that we are becoming more and more like Christ and we're getting more and more free from sin, that we are not uh, just saved to, that's the old, the old Southern Baptist part of us says that we're not saved to sit, we're saved to serve, right? And that's, that means that we have to, we have this sanctification process. We talked about how it's a progressive process, that you should be more like Christ today than you were yesterday, that you should be more like Christ this year than you were last year. And hopefully that in five years from now, we're more like Christ five years from now than we are right now. It's a progressive work. Uh, it's not like a ju- justification is all at once. Wouldn't it be great if sanctification happened all at once? You get saved and you just fully not like Christ, right? That'd be incredible, but that's not what it is. Uh, it's a process. It's a, pro- it's, a, it's a progression that we continue to learn and we continue to develop. I told you guys that uh, long before Shrek ever said it, that ogres are like onions, I said the Christian life is like an onion because there's always layers that God's trying to develop in us. And once we figure something out, he peels that back and there's another one. And we go, okay, work on this. And we go, okay. And we start working on that and we figure it out and he peels that back and there's another one. And it just keeps on and on. I can promise you, you can talk to a believer who has been saved for uh, 80 or 90 years and they'll say, I'm still in progress. I'm still figuring it out. I'm still learning more and more. And that is the process of sanctification. That's the present part of salvation. Now, in the last week, we paused because like I said, when I plan these things out, I plan for this to be a one and done. And I'd already planned out our back to school service. And so we had to pause last week and we prayed for our teachers and our students. And, you know, apparently they needed it because this week was wild. And I talked to a lot of them and we were able to take all the backpack food that you guys collected and as, as well as a $1,500 check from Emmanuel Baptist Church, which is incredible. That's a whole nother story uh, to our backpack ministry and talked to some of the teachers up there. And they were just like, Whew. 
It's been a wild week. It was Wednesday when I showed up. It was a wild week at Wednesday. And so uh, last week we served its purpose well, I believe. And so this week we're back and we're back to our final point, maybe our final wrap up of this whole entire um, series. And this is our big church word, uh, glorification, okay? And so we've talked about justification. That's the, the act that makes us right with God. We talked about sanctification, the act of becoming more like Christ. And then the final act of salvation is glorification. And so let's go back to our passage of scripture that really kind of dive all three of these out for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. And I'll have it on the screen if you aren't there. It says this, praise be to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to had to suffer grief of all kinds and trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now this passage of scripture I told you from the very first week speaks of all three elements of salvation. It speaks of the past, the present, and the promise. Remember in week one, we looked at he has given us new birth. That's a past tense verb. And then week two, we looked at you are receiving. You are currently receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a present tense. And this week, I want us to look at the promise into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you catch all those future tense words, right? Inheritance, kept until the coming of salvation, right? Revealed in the last time. These are all future tense words verbiage, things that we will look forward to, things that will happen, things that have not happened yet. So if we're boiling this all down to our three big points, then point number three, this week's big point, is the promise of salvation is the glorification of the resurrected believer. Now that is a very important phrase and you should circle that word resurrected. We're going to talk about that a lot today. I'm going to make another big point, And so you can kind of label that point number three B, but I got to give you some uh, background because if I just say it, it's not going to make sense. And so if, to get the background, we got to have a little bit of history. And if you know me, you know that I love the history of, of scripture and I love the history of the early church. And so just stay with me on this and I promise it's going to make sense. Okay. So if we talk about the topic of the afterlife, right? We're talking about what happens after we die. The glorification does not happen until obviously either we are resurrected or Jesus comes back, okay? And so the thought of the afterlife is, has been a long conversation within the Jewish, the Jewish community as well as the Christian community, okay? And so if we go all the way back, even before Jesus 
was alive, there were two major groups that kind of ruled religious authority in that time. And that was the groups of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You guys remember this, right? Now, neither one of them, it's important to note, neither one of them were priests. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not priests. They did not perform any kind of sacrificial duty. They did not do anything in the temple. They were just, quote unquote, the experts in the law. And even in their own uh, religious authority, they disagreed on the concept of what happens after you die. And so there's the two groups, the Sadducees. If you think about them, think about aristocratic, think about old money, think about politically connected individuals. They're normally politically connected to Rome, right? Because Rome was the ruling authority. Uh, They, as Sadducees, did not believe in any kind of uh, angels or demons. They did not believe in the resurrection or any sort of afterlife at all, okay? And so that one kind of authority says, no, none of that exists. And the other, the Pharisees, you can think of them as kind of like the people's people, right? They are, they're the merchants. They're the, they're the people who kind of grew up in Jewish culture, but they, they accumulated enough wealth and enough uh, savings that they could kind of leave their job and focus on studying and interpreting scripture. The Pharisees uh, did believe in angels and demons. They did believe in an afterlife and in the resurrection. And I know it's cheesy, just go with me. It's the easiest way to remember the two differences. The Pharisees, uh, although they were the people's people, they were pretty hypocritical. They said a lot of things, but they didn't necessarily live it out in their own life. Hence, they were not fair, you see. I know, sorry. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Hence, they were sad, you see. Okay, that's the difference. That's the easiest way to remember the difference between a Sadducee and a Pharisee. The Pharisees were pretty hypocritical. The Sadducees were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And I tell you all of this because in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, beginning parts of the New Testament, your understanding of the afterlife is a little bit different from what we understand right now. The way the Jews believed the afterlife, they believed in a place called Sheol. And Sheol is kind of like this if you just think of it as this, this big holding ground for everybody, and everybody is waiting the final judgment of God. And those who, are, who have been evil and who have kind of rejected God and the law of God, they're at the bottom of Sheol and they are in torment, they are in fire, they are in not a good place, right? But those who have respected the law and who have kept the law and who have honored God in their life, they're at the top of Sheol. As a matter of fact, they called that Abraham's bosom. It's kind of a weird word, but that's what they called it. And so they're close to Abraham. The ones who rejected God were kind of down the bottom, but they were all in the same place called Sheol. Now, this is where, this is just a side note, this is where uh, Catholic uh, thought of purgatory comes from, okay? Because in Catholicism, they believe that everybody goes to purgatory and waits. Uh, Well, that's not taught in scripture at all, uh, but they get that from this idea of old Jewish thought of Uh, of the afterlife. Now, I say all of that to say that after the, after Jerusalem fell in AD 70, that's after Jesus died and and the Romans did come in and they finally destroyed the temple and all that kind of stuff. Sadduceic Judaism, which is the ones who don't believe in the afterlife, that just kind of disappears. And Pharisee Judaism is what continues. As a matter of fact, if you, if you encounter a Jew today, their roots are in Pharisee Judaism. Okay. And so their understanding of the afterlife is 
Yes, that it does exist, and yes, that a resurrection does take place, okay? Now, I, I tell you all that to say that even before Jesus came, the concept of what happens after we die is a conversation that is splitting groups, that is, that is very much kind of polar opposites from each other. And then if you fast forward that story to a man named Jesus who came and who lived and who his followers saw him die and hang on a cross until he was dead, be taken off that cross and his deceased body placed in a tomb where it stayed for three days. And then after that, more than 500 people over a course of 40 days saw him, heard him, touched him, and witnessed him alive. Now we have this whole new thought of resurrection and what that means. As a matter of fact, I believe very much that it is the single most important event in the Christian life is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the most important event in history. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith, right? And so we know that that, that one point, the resurrection of Jesus, is the only point that hinges anything that we believe. As a matter of fact, I believe that the majority of things that we like as first or 21st century Christians like to argue about when it comes to religion and faith and all that kind of stuff, if we were to take those to men like Peter and James and John, and we were to say, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? You know what I think the response would be? Man, I don't, I don't know. All I know is I watched my friend die. And then three days later, he was back to life again. And I put my faith and hope in that. I think that's what they would say. I think the only thing, as a matter of fact, the only reoccurring message of the early church was, quote, you killed them, God raised them, and we're all witnesses of that. That's what the church preached. That's if you go through the book of Acts, it's in there over and over and over again because it's the only thing that mattered. We get all messed up on all this other stuff, but when, when Peter and James and John would say, they'd say, listen, we believe in the resurrection because we saw it. We saw it happen. We saw our friend who had died and now he's alive again. It's the only thing that matters. And so now we have this other layer of what the resurrection and what the afterlife looks like. And then we fast forward this even further into the first, second, third, fourth century, okay? When, when the early church is meeting and, and there's people who are gathered in, in the name of Jesus and, and when the Romans are trying to eradicate and the Jews are trying to eradicate this new Christian faith, right? And then we have finally in 325 AD, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, finally legalizes Christianity so that, that the Christians can meet in public and not fear for their life. The Christians have to now start beginning to put pen and paper to what they believe and how, what it is that they say is most important. And that's where we start getting all these, um, these creeds and all the different uh, councils and all this different stuff. But if you go back just a couple of generations to the second century, there was a group of people that ro rose up and in the, I say this Christian with a little c, Christian thought, and they were called the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Y'all probably understand, they've probably even heard of the Gnostics. The Gnostics, I say little c Christians because they really twisted and maligned the idea of what scripture was and how Jesus came and taught. And here's, I don't have time to get into everything that they believe. It's really pretty wild. If you wanna know about it, come talk to me later because it is like, it'll blow your mind. But one of the fundamental elements that the Gnostics believed was that everything created, all created matter was evil. The only thing that was good was the soul of man. 
And so that even has major implications into theology in that, that, that why would we ever have a resurrected body? Because our bodies are worthless. They're bad. They're, 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 they're evil. The only thing good about us is our souls. And so when we die, we go to heaven and that's just the end of it. As a matter of fact, they would even say that Jesus himself and his physical body was bad, but the soul of Jesus in what we know as the man of Jesus was what was good and redeemable and all that great stuff. Obviously, this dualism of good and bad created in soul, matter, and spirit caused a little bit of discussion and a little bit of rift within the early church. And, and eventually, yes, Gnosticism was deemed heretical and they kind of just stamped it out. If you, go to a, if you go to a Barnes and Noble bookstore right now, you'll see a book called The Gnostic Gospels. That is a, that is a what's that called? An oxymoron in itself. It, it cannot be an, a Gnostic gospel because the gospel has nothing to do with Gnosticism, okay? And so if you read those books or if you get into that kind of, uh, kind of world religion type stuff, just kind of set it off to the side and don't even bother with it. So, but it does add a, an interesting question. If, if the bodies are bad, why would we ever be resurrected? If, if all of that is, is, is no good, then what's the point of the resurrection? And, and if we read through scripture, it's easily, it's easily combated. Here's what it says. God loves our bodies right? God loves everything about the created human. He loves our fingernails and our hair. He loves our kidneys and spleens. He loves, he loves everything about our eyeballs and our tongues. He loves everything because look at Genesis 2, 7. The Lord for God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. So God formed man out of the dust from the ground. We have this mortal body created from created earth that has a soul breathed into it. In this moment, both body and soul are equally valued by the creator. When God says in Genesis chapter one, let's make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them, man and woman, he created them, right? This is, this is God putting his stamp on the created man and how we were made, how we were formed and how we were put together in his image. And then what happened? We all know Adam and Eve sinned, right? Eve ate what was probably a pomegranate or something of that sort. Adam went ahead and did it too. And then Sin entered the equation. Not only did sin, but so did the idea and the concept of death. What did God say once Adam had eaten that? Do you know? Genesis chapter three, verse 17 through 19. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat of the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from it, you are dust and you will return to dust. See, this is the simple equation. I think I even have it on your screen here. That creation is man from the earth. But death is man back into the earth. Creation is man out of the earth. Death is man back into the earth. Now we're gonna read these passages of scripture in their full length in just a minute, but it's good to note it here. Second Corinthians chapter five, we'll get there in just a second, talks about how heaven 
without our bodies, we are naked. We're not full. We're, we're waiting for our house. Paul is speaking of, of our resurrected bodies. We're, we're waiting for the full picture of heaven. In Romans chapter eight, we'll get there in a second, creation waits an expectation for revelation and it's the redemption of our bodies. It's an incredibly important thing. So if this equation is true, if death is a reversal of the creative act of God, if creation is man taken from the earth and death is man back into the earth, then the resurrection is the redemption of man back from earth. It's the key point because in its most basic form, salvation is salvation from death, right? So here's our big point, number 3B. I told you it was gonna take me a second to get there. Big point, number 3B, your salvation is not complete until your resurrection. The, the glorification of the resurrected believer is the promise of salvation. That is just my introduction, okay? I've got 10 minutes. There's no way we're gonna get done in time, okay? Here's the point, okay? All of that, all of that thought and all this conversation and from the Pharisees and Sadducees to what happened with Jesus and now the disciples and the believers in Christ and how they believe in resurrection. And then we get all the way up to people who are still trying to say, no, we wouldn't resurrect from the body because the body's bad. All this has to play into our understanding of what happens. What happens in salvation from justification to sanctification and glorification. So let's look at our two passages of scripture. I told you we were gonna read through them. This is 2 Corinthians chapter five. I'll give you just a second to get there because this gives us a couple of really incredible points. We're gonna look at 2 Corinthians, we're gonna look at Romans, and then I've got one last thought that I'm gonna share to you that's fundamental, it's non-negotiable. We have to talk about that as well. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse one, we'll read one through five, says this. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Did you notice the verbiage in this? It's really important. Our bodies on earth are a tent. That's what Paul says. A, a temporary residence, right? If you have a King James Version Bible, it'll probably say a tabernacle. And I really like that, okay? The, the, think about the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle was this temporary structure until the temple was built. It was never intended to stay long. It was never intended to be the, the final dwelling place of God. The temple was, the tabernacle was was, it was temporary. It was up and it was down. The, the word tent in the Greek is the word skenos. And it comes from the word skenaho. And skenaho means tabernacle. Isn't that great? 
And so when Paul writes here, he's saying, listen, we're in this tabernacle. We're in this temporary tabernacle. As a matter of fact, that same Greek word is used in John 1.14, which is one of the most incredible verses in all scripture. For the word became flesh and skenahod among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Listen, that body that Jesus had was not his permanent dwelling either. It was temporary. Paul calls our heavenly bodies buildings and houses. Those words literally mean a large imposing structure. And the house means that it's an inhabited dwelling. It's where you live. It's where you stay. It's your house. Isn't that incredible verbiage? It's not by accident. He didn't just say, oh, this is a tent and that's a house. No, it had an incredible deep meaning. Look at verse two and three in that same passage. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we'll not be found naked. We're waiting. We're waiting for our heavenly clothing, our heavenly building, our heavenly house. That phrase is not talking about the mansion and glory that we're going to get. He's talking about our resurrected bodies. That when we're there without our resurrected body, we are missing something. We're lacking something. It's not complete yet. The full extent of the promise of salvation has not yet been accomplished. The glorification of our resurrected bodies. Our bodies, he's, he's talking about how our bodies are missing. We're waiting for something. And I love verse five. Verse five puts it all in the context for us because it says this, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who's given us a spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He fashioned us for this. It's, and not only did he, not only did he would it work it out in this way, he, he's also giving us his spirit as a guarantee that it's gonna happen. Listen, I believe very much that the same spirit of God that caused Jesus to walk out of the tomb, out of his death, is the same spirit of God that lives in us that will cause us to do the same. That just like Jesus was resurrected, we also will be resurrected and our bodies will do the same thing his did. They will walk out of the grave. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of the glory of his father. Church, the spirit that lives inside of you is your deposit. It's your down payment. It's your guarantee of the promise of salvation, the redemption of your bodies. Look at one more verse, Romans chapter eight. Romans eight, we're rolling through. Romans eight, 22 and 23 says this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Remember that deposit, that guarantee? We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 
That word is incredibly important. It didn't say that we're waiting, that we're groaning, that we're waiting for our souls. No, it didn't say that we're waiting for our, for our spirits. No, it said we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We have the spirit as an inheritance, as a guarantee, as a down payment that he's gonna come back and receive our bodies. I cannot say it enough. God loves our bodies. And our salvation is not complete until our bodies are redeemed from death and from the earth and united with our spirit in heaven. The promise of salvation is the glorification of the resurrected believer. Church, you think this is so kind of abstract. It is because we only have one example and that's Jesus. We have one person that we go back to, and it's him. We have to establish this one fundamental thought, and I'm going to be done. So this is my last thought. It's a hard one in all reality. But it's, it's the most true statement that has the biggest impact on everything that we talk about when we talk about our afterlife and our glorification. And here it is. The decision that determines the destination of your eternity has to be made on this side of death. The decision that determines the destination of your eternity has to be made on this side of death. There is no post-mortem salvation, meaning that once you die, you can't decide to get saved at that point. You have to make that decision right now. And Jesus teaches us this very fundamental truth in Luke chapter 16. We don't have time to read all of it. Read it later this afternoon because it's such an incredible parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Some of you know this passage of scripture. I've taught through this passage of scripture before. It just says this, basic points is that the rich man did not believe, Lazarus did believe, and they both die, right? The rich man went to hell and was in torment. This is Jesus' word. Lazarus was carried to Abraham's side. Remember our Pharisee, Sadducee understanding of the afterlife? Abraham, or the Lazarus was carried to Abraham's side. And it says from hell, when he was in torment, the rich man cries out to Abraham and says, will you please just send Lazarus to dip the finger if his, uh, the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And Abraham responds in, in Luke 16, 26, but he says this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot and anyone, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man begs again, please send Lazarus to, uh, to tell my family I got five brothers. And Abraham responds again in, in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man one more time says, no, no, if you send someone from the dead, then they'll repent. And Abraham almost chillingly says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Church, listen. Every believer, every person, believer or non-believer, 
who has ever died believes in the existence of God. Every single person who has ever died believes in the existence of God. And we have someone who has been risen from the dead, someone who is a testimony of this promise. And because, just like Jesus said, we can't go from one place to the other. It's set in place, it's established, it's firm, it's fixed. There's no changing that. And once you've died, that decision is set and it's established and it's fixed. And, and I'm just gonna say this because it's so important. No decision is a decision of unbelief. No decision is a decision. So my question to you this morning as we, as we begin to close is this idea of why miss out? Why, why not look at death not as the end but as the beginning of something eternal, right? Why not look forward to the promise, to the guarantee, to the down payment, to the, to the redeemed body, this heavenly building, this fulfillment of salvation, this promise of glorification today could be the day. Today could be the day that you receive that down payment, that guarantee that, and it all has to do with one decision about one person. That person is Jesus. Jesus tells us himself in John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. Our decision about accepting what Jesus did in the past and the justification that he provides, our life of sanctification becoming more like Christ will lead to the glorification of our resurrected bodies. They are all three essential elements of salvation. And there's only one decision that matters. What are you gonna do about Jesus. For many of us, we have heard the story and the, time, and, the, and, the, and the narrative of Jesus for our whole life, and it's become almost commonplace. It's become almost routine. But when put in light of eternity, nothing that Jesus did was ordinary. Nothing that Jesus did was commonplace. Everything had a purpose. And the fulfillment of that purpose is our resurrection, to live eternally with him in heaven. Listen, we can talk about a thousand little, what about this, what about this? The only thing that matters is what you've done with Jesus. So church this morning, our invitation is very simple. It's very easy. I'm asking you one question. Do you know where you'll spend eternity? Do you know that when Jesus comes back or when he calls us home, that we will experience the full extent of salvation and the glorification of our resurrected bodies. If you don't know, today's the day to figure that out. If you don't know for sure, if you hope, that's not what Jesus wanted. He wanted you to know. There's only one way you know. You have to surrender your heart and you have to surrender your life. And it's more than just praying a prayer and walking an aisle. It has nothing to do with baptism. Baptism is an expression of that decision. The decision is what matters. You have to make the decision to say, you know what, Jesus, what you did on the cross, what we talked about three weeks ago, you provided something for me. I want to make it mine today. You come underneath, you repent. You leave your life of sin. 
and you begin to work out this new life in Him. Church, have you done that? If you haven't, then I would love to walk you through that. 